I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and as I've mentioned a couple of times, I am closing in on my half-century mark. I'll be 50 this summer, and I've gotten into 50, I've gotten into history uh, the older I'm getting. And one of the things I've really begun to treasure is the history of the place where I grew up, the Washington, D.C. area. There's a plaza there that I have actually attended events at called the La Enfant Plaza. And uh, what I did not know growing up, because these are the kind of things you don't care about, is that it's actually named for the French architect, artist, engineer who designed the city of Washington. Pierre L'Enfant became friends with George Washington when he worked alongside of him in the Revolutionary War. And it was L'Enfant who requested of his new friend, George Washington, the privilege of designing the nation's new capital city. After surveying what was then, and now you can still call some of it Foggy Bottom, they referred to that area just off the Potomac River on the coast of both Maryland and Virginia. When L'Enfant watched the terrain, looked at the terrain, observed it all, he developed this, what it was called, a Baroque plan. And a Baroque plan is one that features lots of ceremonial spaces and grand avenues. And the grandest of these avenues was going to be the, the, the streets between the two great houses, the House of Congress and the House of the President, which we now know of as the White House. But as the capital of a new nation, the purpose in designing this city this way was that it had an appearance of greatness at the time, greater than the nation's size or nation's economic or governmental power. It was designed to, when heads of states visited the Washington, D.C. area, to imagine that the United States was actually grander and stronger than it was. It had the effect of being glorious. It was intended as a model for American city planning and a symbol of government power. What's surprising to many about this plan is that with almost no exceptions, La Enfant's vision for the Washington Mall and the areas of the government monuments has largely been unchanged since it was designed 200 years ago. Glory is something that we're going to talk about today because it's mentioned just a few times in the four verses uh, that we read in Scripture Glory is something that we all long for, but it is oftentimes in our world, unlike Washington, D.C.'s glory in terms of its architecture, seems to fade quite a bit. It has been heartbreaking if you've been following the story of Bobby Christina Brown, who is the daughter of uh, R&B singer uh, Bobby Brown and the late Whitney Houston, and it's triggered in my memory a story that a friend of mine told me about his encounter with Whitney Houston 20-some years ago. Uh, This friend of mine who is involved in Christian music had the occasion to meet Whitney Houston in the early 90s. And he was so starstruck by her that he said he couldn't speak. When he told me about it, he said she was 5'8", and she was in heels, and she was beautiful. I mean, flawless. As well, she's got a, she, has a, she had a very strong personality, and on top of that, she's one of the most talented singers, and at the time was one of the most famous in the world. And when he met her, and she extended her hand to say hello to him, he literally couldn't speak. 
And then he was a big guy. He played college football. I mean, this was a, a manly man. But he met her. He was just like, it was a sense of, oh, my goodness, this person's personality, this person's being was, to quote him, glorious. Unfortunately, you can see the effect and could see the effect that drugs, human nature, had on so many, including inspiring artists like Whitney Houston, that towards the end of her life, she was tired and wounded, like many of us. And unfortunately, the ramifications of a difficult life are now affecting her offspring. In the 1980s, there were few in the world as glorious as Whitney Houston. But as we can see, glory fades. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, and in it he writes, I quote, There is no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms, crowns, white robes, thrones, and splendor like sun and stars. All this makes no immediate appeal to me at all, and in that respect, I fancy I am a typical modern. Glory suggests two ideas to me, of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame, or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? The biting wit of C.S. Lewis. Today's passage is filled with contrasts that seek to affirm the glory of things past, but underscore the superiority of the glory of the new. The old covenant is compared with the new covenant. And in today's passage, in three substantial ways. The ministry of the Spirit is more splendid than the ministry brought that brought death, the law. The ministry that brings righteousness is more splendid than the ministry that condemns. And the ministry that lasts is more splendid than the one that was fading away. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Today I'd like to do two things. The first would be to define glory. And the second would be to demonstrate in Scripture how it's been displayed. Before we can talk about the implications of glory, we need to grasp what is meant and why this is such an important subject and why it's so often talked about in Scripture. So let's begin by looking at the glory of God defined, the weight and the wow. The big idea in our passage today is glory, a word that appears ten times in four verses. Sometimes when you're trying to dig around and prepare a sermon, it, it takes real work to figure out what's the central idea of the passage I'm going to preach about today. Not so much this week. All right? If you can't figure this out, you don't deserve to be in ministry. You shouldn't be teaching anybody anything if you can't figure out that these four verses are about glory. The, the word itself, glory, is the Greek word doxa. It corresponds with the Old Testament word Kavod, which appears 200 times in the Old Testament. The, the context speaks of glory so brilliant that Moses' face 
was reflecting what he saw in God, and the Israelites couldn't even look at him. They were in awe of what they saw. Our love for glory is seen in our hero-worshiping, whether it be the arts, or athletics, or business, or politics. Unfortunately for some, the world of religion inspires this type of awe of people. But if you're not an athlete, you can't understand why a bunch of dopes would sit around amazed at a dunk that somebody made. You go, what is the big deal? In the same way, if, if you're not uh, an artist, you, you wonder why it's so amazing to sit and look at great works of art. But all of us have this longing deep within us to see something transcendent, something bigger than ourselves, something more important than ourselves, something superior to ourselves. Whatever our interests are, we love to see greatness, and this greatness is a hint at the longing within all of us to see the glory of God. The scriptures say that we have seen this in Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Both the New Testament Greek word doxa And the Hebrew Old Testament word kavod convey God's infinite, intrinsic worth, his substance, his his essence. The word kavod means heavy, the heaviness of God, the weightiness of God. The glory of God should produce awe within us. In the way my friend was in awe of Whitney Houston's beauty and talent and stature. This should be the response to seeing the glory of God. We want to be near it, but we must reverently recognize it. And while we're not called to exalt human beings, it is appropriate for us to recognize who we are in relationship to people of stature within our culture. You might say, well, what do you mean? Well, in Romans 13, it says that we're supposed to submit to authority, pray for those in leadership. Oftentimes, I'll hear, particularly from my very conservative Southern friends, a disdain for our current president. And that makes me sad because the scriptures are really clear that you're supposed to actually show honor to those who are in leadership. And yeah, you can speak truth to power, but It's almost as if people think they could walk into the president's office and be disrespectful to him, and that would be okay with God. It would not be, regardless of his political stance. It would not be okay for you to demonstrate disrespect. I I recall an incident very clearly from 20 years ago in the media. Do you remember Stone Phillips? He used to host Dateline NBC with the capital on Eusta. Before... He was this correspondent who walked into George H.W. Bush, President 41 of the United States, and, and asked him an inappropriate question in the Oval Office. And before he actually got to asking the question, President H.W. Bush warned him, listen, before you go here, understand, you are in the Oval Office. And he went ahead and asked him this really inappropriate question anyway. And the president rightly ended the interview. That ended as well, Stone Phillips' access to the White House. 
and began the downward trajectory of his media career. Now, some people might think that Stone Phillips um, had uh, quite a bit of moxie, but no, Stone was just inappropriate. Stone was not recognizing where he was. He was not respectful of the environment he was in. So often in our theological climate that is North America, we'll hear people talk about God in ways that reduce his holiness, his otherness, his superiority, his glory. And the fear is this, that if we make God holy and righteous and potentially angry with sin, that will make him unappealing to people. It will make us feel bad about ourselves. But reducing the glory and holiness of God does nothing but reduce the amazement associated with his interest in us. Do you understand that? The more other he is, the more amazing it is that he's so fascinated and loves us and would go to the lengths he's gone to to pursue us. You could say, it makes me feel bad that God is holy Or in some cases, people are just like, God can't be angry with sin. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I don't want to worship a God who's not angry with racial injustice. I don't want to worship a God who's not angry when little children are abducted. I don't believe that's the God of the Old Testament. I don't believe that's the God of the New Testament. God is holy and other and displeased because when people dishonor him, when people disobey his word, It's not just breaking the rules, it's harming people. And in that, he is moved to be just. Now, the the sticking point for most, including myself, is that we love justice when it has something to do with you. We don't want to think about justice as it's pertaining to us. But when people rob God of the glory and stature of who he is, his otherness, his transcendence, It does not make his grace amazing. It makes people casual about it. It does not make them feel buddy-buddy. It makes them feel, why would I pay any attention to this? And thus, it spurs in people a kind of a Stone Phillips approach to dealing with God. Don't get me wrong. We have all the access we could ever dream of as the children of God. But when we come into the Lord's presence, it's with a sense of amazement that we have this access. This is the appropriate approach to glory. The glory of God. In verse 7, it came with such glory. In verse 8, because of its glory, even more glory. Glory is important. It's what makes us amazed and makes us want to love God. It's the weight of who God is, but it's also that which produces the wow in us that says, I'm going to follow This glorious, gracious God. So we've defined glory. Now I want to look today at our passage as it talks about the glory of God displayed. The glory of God displayed in the covenant and in the Christ. Let's reread our passage. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed 
it's, and, it's, and it must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. We're looking in two things here with regards to the glory of God displayed. One is the covenant, the other is the Christ. And in verse 7, it speaks of the covenant's glory, the old covenant's passing glory, the new covenant's uh, eternal glory. A covenant, friend, is God's reaching out to us. When God speaks of covenants, it's, it's a declaration he's making. It's a commitment he's making. Yesterday, I did, as I often do, marriages, which are covenants. Two people covenanting together before God to love each other till death parts them. It's a covenant. It's a commitment that can't be broken. And God is the one who is initiating these covenants with us. The first covenant was one where he said, here are the law Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, having been face to face with God, his face exploding with glory because he saw the Almighty and carrying with him are the Ten Commandments. This was glorious, but these commandments did nothing but tell us how we were to live. They did not tell us how to actually do that. See, a covenant is God's way of showing his interest in us. It glorified him to do so, to, make this, to take this initiative in the old covenant. Another way you can say the word glorified, because you hear this word a lot, not only is it a it's root word, glory, but in Christian circles you can talk about glorification and you hear people say things like, I just want to glorify the Lord. And you go, what in the world does that Christian speak mean? And what I would say is one great way of recasting or reframing the word glorified is to say something that you or I do, or in this case, something God has done, accents or emphasizes his character and his attributes. So when you and I try to glorify ourselves, we are trying to accent or lift to a high place or get everybody to, to, to fixate on some aspect of us when we are trying to glorify God or when God seeks to glorify himself, what he's doing is he's trying to get you and I to see aspects of who he is, facets of his being, attributes of his holiness that you and I can be attracted to. See, because it would make us awe to see these things. Moses' experience is said in verse 7 here in the Old Covenant to be insufficient to bring life. You can notice in, in this section of Scripture the contrasts of stone and flesh. These are purposeful contrasts. Ink and spirit. Old Covenant, New Covenant. The ministry of the Spirit brought life in the New Covenant. The radiance of the glory that, was exposed, that Moses was exposed to in his face was fading away. And so the first word, the first words of our passage here are, now if the ministry of death, now this is referring to the old covenant. I find that a strange way to express something that was supposed to describe God's covenant outreach to us in the old. The ministry of death. <laughs> Just a very harsh description it seems. 
Dr. Sam Storms, who's actually a part of the network of churches in which we're a part, has written this about this particular verse. All participants in the new covenant are provided with inner power, that is, the Holy Spirit, to fulfill its dictates. The old covenant made no such provision. Its dictates confronted a people whose hearts were stone. The effect of God's commandments on unchanged or stony hearts is condemnation and death. Thus, spiritually speaking, the old covenant killed and made it therefore a ministry of death. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, are merely expressions of the glory of God. They're expressions of the attributes of God. The, the commandments of God spring forth not from God saying, okay, I want to make some rules before we move on here. He's saying, let me tell you and express to you who I am. And the commandments are merely consistent with my attributes. Love, sacrifice, or as Jesus summarized the commandments and saying, love God with all of your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the the commands of God are not burdensome because they point us to the attributes of God, the glory of God. And this is what we see in Christ. And this is why the new covenant is glorious and is so glorious that it makes the old covenant seem like it lacks glory, which is exactly what verse 9 says. The covenant's glory is is that God is showing his the attribute of his pursuit and his love of his people. The Christ's glory is that we are actually getting to see and experience and know righteousness in a couple of different ways. Verse 9 talks about the Christ bringing righteousness. Talks about this new covenant, bringing righteousness. It's important to recognize what's meant here in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 3. This new covenant brings righteousness by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit that now lives in believers. If you have the Spirit living in you, which is a prerequisite to being called a Christian, the Holy Spirit would live in you. By definition, you are a Christian. If you do not have the Holy Spirit living in you, you may be a nominal Christian, somebody who is a Christian in name, but in essence, you're not a Christian. That comes when the Spirit comes to take up residence in your life. This Spirit's presence creates power, It creates uh, an an experience of knowing that you can rely on him to actually live increasingly in ways that please God. Now, that doesn't make us justified. The second component of the righteousness that is a gift of this new covenant is what makes us acceptable to God. And this is where, for many, the confusion lies. If you were raised in church in some way, you've had some experience with religious people in some way, you've heard, okay, here are the commandments, obey the commandments. And you might think for a second that if you don't obey the commandments very well, that you're not acceptable to God. Well, see, righteousness is a byproduct of somebody who has actually experienced the Spirit of God living in your life. If you have become a Christian and the Holy Spirit lives in you, there's going to be something in you that hungers for righteousness. Now, you're not going to do it very well compared to God. You may do it very well compared to some, but you are never going to be able to take pride in front of God to go, you know, I've really accomplished something impressive here. But righteousness that makes us okay with the Father, that puts us at rest with the Father, is talking about the righteousness of Jesus. 
as theologians call it, the imputed righteousness of Christ. You see, Jesus, unlike us, had the power within his own being to perfectly obey the law. And so he did. And when he was on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says his, sin, his holiness was exchanged for our sin. We call it double imputation. His holiness and righteousness is credited to us. That's what the word imputed means. But our sin was imputed to him. See, his obedience to the law is now credited to us. This is the gift of righteousness that comes from the new covenant. It's not just you and I trying to live righteously, which we will, and we will desire to do more and more. The real gift of the new covenant is you and I receiving a righteousness from God that immediately, right now, makes you and I acceptable to him. Paul wrote of this in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. He says, But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, the righteousness that comes with the new covenant is a gift. The righteousness that was spelled out in the law describes the holiness of God, but it gives you and I no capacity for actually obeying the law. So in in, in essence, it's a death sentence to us. But the new covenant says, I'm going to give you the spirit of God who will empower you to live in a way that pleases God in increasing measure. But the holiness of Jesus is credited to you right out of the gate. Your righteousness before God is a gift. It comes by faith. It comes by complete and total trust, reliance upon, looking to. We also, in a third way, see Christ's righteousness in this new covenant. We see righteousness that comes by the new capacity of the Spirit's strength in our life, by the imputation of Christ's holiness to us, but we also see it in a third way, which is the actual incarnation into human form of God. Christ's glory is now seen. Christ's righteousness is now seen because Jesus' splendor was displayed clearly in human form. He is the exact representation of the Father's being. In 2 Corinthians 4, which we'll get to shortly in our series this year in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul will write these words, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's being. In our postmodern relativistic truth is unknowable, and it is arrogant to claim that you know the way to God. This biblical truth swims against a very strong current. The idea that you could know with some degree of certainty what God is like will put you at odds with most, at least most thinking, philosophical people in our culture. If Jesus is the glory of God revealed in flesh, then friends, he isn't a way to God. 
He is God. That is why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way. Many have tried to point the way to God, tried to describe God, tried to say this is what you might want to live like if you think it would please God. Jesus comes along and says, I am the glory of God. The exact representation of the deity's being is seen in my character, in my character traits. In my attributes, you see physically before you, in my face, the attributes of the living God. This is the new covenant. That's why it lasts longer than the old covenant, because Jesus lives. Because the glory that we get to see, the holiness of God, and at the same time, a a fuller expression of his glory, and that Jesus was kind, and Jesus was loving, and Jesus was patient, even at this wedding, as do most ministers at weddings, you read from the scriptures, love is patient, love is kind, 1 Corinthians 13, you've been there, you've done that. The next time you read through that list, though, you need to understand that those are merely descriptions of the attributes of the creator. God is patient, God is kind. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life because he is our creator and God and he has made a new covenant, a new demonstration of his pursuit of us. He will give us life. He will provide the means of us being restored to him. Why? Because he loves us. Because he longs to be in fellowship with his children. This is a difficult thing in our world for some to understand because they have been estranged from their parents. One story, it's heartbreaking, I read recently in Sports Illustrated was about Aaron Levi. Aaron Levi is a 50-year-old man trying to connect, reconnect with his biological parents, one of whom was likely the late NBA and L.A. Lakers star Wilt Chamberlain, who infamously said he slept with over 20,000 women but didn't bear any children. The statistical odds of that being true are very, you know, small. Aaron Levy looks like him. Aaron Levy was six foot tall when he was 12 years old. Aaron Levy's mother told him, yes, Wilt, it is your dad. The Chamberlain family will have nothing to do with him. Levi's heartbreaking pursuit of this truth isn't about money. He's told the Chamberlain family, I'm 50 years old. I'm an artist in San Francisco. I've got no interest in your money. I'm just wanting to bring some resolution to my life because I, I don't know my biological parents and I want, I want to connect with this side of my family. His mother was French and white and his father obviously was African American from Kansas and he's saying, I just want to know my extended family. There's this longing within him. I want to be reconnected to my family. And it was heartbreaking in the piece that I watched online when asked if he could ask the late Wilt Chamberlain, who passed away years ago. If you could ask him one question, what would it be? His answer was, I would ask him, did you ever think about me? Isn't that heartbreaking? Deep down in his soul, he just wants to know that he's thought of and loved, that his father, his creator, cared about him. This is the beauty of the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You and I long for reconnection with our Father, our Creator. And He doesn't turn away. He doesn't run from us. Quite the opposite. He pursues reconnecting with us. And has done so with the old covenant that hinted about what was to come. The new covenant has displayed in all of its glory and grace the pursuit of us in Jesus who died for our sins, earned our salvation by his righteousness and brought us to life by his spirit. He loves you. If you're not his child, he wants to reconnect with you. That longing you have in your heart to see glory, to experience glory, to know glory. This is that which is within you, created within you. Something that says, I want to know transcendence. This is your heart's longing to be reconnected with your Father and Creator. I close today with this from C.S. Lewis's Weight of Glory. I quote, In some sense, As dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can can be both banished from the presence of Him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of Him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Let us pray. Lord, my friends and I, will look for glory in things that you know cannot fill our souls. We have spent many of our days, even those of us who would say that we know the glory of the Father, we have to confess to you today that we have spent many a day trying to satisfy that deep sense in our soul with with things of earth that are terminal, temporary, Father, would you today enable your children to look and discover anew and afresh the joy of being so close to the glory of God. And Father, for my friends who are here today who have never genuinely received your spirit, either because they didn't know they had to, they didn't know it was possible to, they didn't even know that it was something that was even available to them. I pray that in this moment of reflection, they would come to a place where they would say, Jesus, please renew my soul. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.